It is inevitable. Like I said before, it is inevitable. inevitable. Wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there, there will be conflict. <laughs> Anytime we get together in Jesus' name, good, well-meaning people who love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength will not get along. It's just inevitable. Conflict comes up more than we would like it to. Uh, we, we fight with one another more than we should. Um, it's hard to be a family. It is hard to be a church family. We come from different places. We have different backgrounds. We have different uh, theological understandings. We interpret the Bible differently. Some of us uh, grew up in the church. Some of us did not. Some of us grew up in different churches and found their way here. All kinds of different reasons that we have conflict in the church. Well, this morning, that's what we're going to talk about is dealing with conflict. We uh, are talking about stories that we know, stories from the book of Acts. We've been talking about these different stories all summer long. Uh, we will continue talking about them for a few more weeks. But today we're going to talk about Acts chapter 15 and the conflict that came up in the early church. And how the early church, the elders and the apostles chose to deal with it. And they chose to deal with it biblically, which I think is very, very important. Now, Satan has a lot of tricks. And one of Satan's greatest tricks is division. Is taking Christians who are supposed to be united, supposed to be as one, and he turns us against one another and we have division. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about, uh, starting in the month of October, and all through the month of October, we're going to talk about knowing our enemy. And we're going to talk about knowing who our enemy is, knowing who our enemy is not, knowing the tricks, knowing how to defeat our enemy, and learning about the enemy's eternal destination. So that's an upcoming sermon series that I'm really excited about, and I hope that you are too. Um, I can't wait to talk about our enemy, which sounds really strange coming from a preacher, but it's only because I know the enemy is defeated. Uh, the uh, enemy has been doing this for nearly 2,000 years trying to bring down the church, trying to bring about division, uh, trying to divide Christians from one another. And like I said, he has been defeated. Uh, he will continue to try and bring down the church, though he will continue to try and tear apart Christ's church. And it is so important that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Uh, as David was saying, we must keep our eyes focused on Christ uh, and, and the things that make us one, the things that unite us rather than on the things that can divide us. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about Acts chapter 15. If you've got a Bible and would turn there, please, to Acts 15. We'll read some of the passages from there, but I want to kind of explain what was going on there a little bit. In the beginning of Acts 15, we see that there was this group of people. Uh, they were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people, they were believers in Jesus, uh, mostly from the, the party of the Pharisees. They were Pharisee believers in Christ who believed that in order to become a Christian, Gentiles, those who were not Jews, would have to become Jews first in order to be Christians. And the thing that they had to do, if you were a man, if you were a Gentile man, you would have to be circumcised and then undergo the what was called a proselyte baptism. So you have to be circumcised and then baptized to become a Jew, and then you could become a Christian. If you're a woman, you would have to undergo the proselyte baptism. And these Judaizers were creating a, a huge division in the church. And the reason that they felt so strongly about this is because they were very zealous for God's law. 
The law was everything. Obeying the law was how you had a, was how you got close to God. Obeying the law is what made you God's people. And if you were going to be God's people, the Gentiles who were not God's people would have to become God's people in order to become God's people. So you have these Judaizers who are raising uh, a big ruckus, um, and uh, they were in, this, uh, in the town of Antioch. Antioch is about 315, 320 miles from Jerusalem. And so the church at Antioch uh, took Paul and Barnabas and sent them to Jerusalem, 320 miles. Apparently this is a big deal. This is a, an important issue. This is something that was really tearing the church apart. So they sent them 320 miles to Jerusalem to talk to the elders and the apostles about what was happening. So we're going to stop. We're going to pa- pause right there. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 5. It says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This is in Jerusalem. Okay? So that's exactly what they're saying. That they've got to become Jews before they can become Christians. And what we have here, the, the, the problem that we have here is a law, is a, a works versus grace salvation. What are we saved by? Are we saved by the good things that we do? Are we saved by obeying God's word? Or are we saved by God's grace? That's the real issue here. Were the early Christians, were these Gentile Christians going to be saved by God's grace? Or were they going to be saved by obeying God's law? This is so important because it's a battle that continues to rage to this day. In churches all across the country, in, in Christian circles all across the country, and all across the world, we, fight, we have this constant tension of what saves us and what keeps us saved. It's God's grace. We are saved by this wonderful gift of God, this incredible gift of grace that He has given to each of us through the death of His Son on the cross and we are saved by His grace. Now, in the Christian churches and churches of Christ, which you are sitting in a Christian church building right now, in the Christian churches, churches of Christ, uh, we are often accused of um, of a, a kind of a works-based salvation because we believe, uh, we have historically believed uh, for 200 and some years that baptism is a part of the plan of salvation. Now, baptism is not the plan of salvation. It is a part of the plan of salvation that we you've got to believe You've got to repent, you've got to confess, you've got to be baptized. That is the, the summation of uh, what we believe as Christians. And you've got to have faith, you've got to believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son and that He died on the cross to forgive your sins. You've got to repent, you've got to turn away from sin and turn to God. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, repent, every one of you. You've got to confess, the book of Romans says that when you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So you've got to confess, you've got to be baptized. Again, back to Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we go on to live a faithful life. That is only possible by God's grace. That it's the, to me, it's the easiest thing in the world. I believe, I repent, I say in my mind, I don't want to live for me, I don't want to live for sin anymore, I want to live for God. To confess, just to utter some words and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God's son, and he's my Lord and Savior, and to be baptized. Now, some will say, and I've, uh, when I went to, I went to a, a general Baptist seminary, and I had many, many heated conversations over baptism with my Baptist and Lutheran and covenant brethren. Uh, we had a lot of fights 
over baptism. They would say, baptism is a work. It's something that you do. And I would say, no, it's not. Baptism is not a work because you can't do it to yourself. You can't baptize yourself. Baptism is an act of submission. It is not, a, it is not something you can do. It is something that is done to you. Now, if you want more information about baptism and uh, what our churches historically believe and what the Bible says about it, there's a paper on the Welcome Center. I promised you last week that I put the paper out there. There's seven copies of it. If you want a copy of it and and you can't grab one fast enough, I know you're just going to race right out of here after service to grab one. Uh, But uh, it's called uh, The uh, Defense of the Necessity of Baptism by Immersion. A Biblical Defense of the Necessity of Baptism by Immersion by Sean L. Cornett. And you can grab one of those on the, and there goes Portia right now to grab one. So there are now six copies. Five, because Sandy grabbed one too. There are five, count them, five copies. They're going fast. This fascinating five-page tiny print uh, paper uh, on uh, baptism. Anyway, so I encourage you, grab one of those. If you can't grab one of those and you do want one of those, please talk to me and I will make sure that we get more copies out there. But it's all about what the Bible says about baptism and, and why, I, why I think it's so important, why the Bible says it's so important, and why the Christian churches, churches of Christ, have believed it's, it's been so important for 200 years. Um, and so I, I just want to make it very clear, though, that the most important thing is that we understand that we are saved by God's grace, that that the whole plan of salvation, everything having to do with salvation is all based in God's grace. It's his gift of love. But even when we understand that, we're still, we, we end up fighting with one another over other issues. Now, I will go to the mat. I will fight over baptism. I will fight over salvation. I will fight over the virgin birth. I will fight over the return of Christ. I will fight over the necessity of faith and, and uh, baptism. I will fight over those things. I will go to the mat. But you know what the problem is in the church? Is we don't fight over issues like works and, and grace. We don't fight over issues uh, like uh, the virgin birth and the second coming. We don't fight over that kind of stuff. We fight over silly things, don't we? How many of you have ever heard of a church split over something silly? Here, I got something I want to read. This is a this is a fictional blog uh, that that this guy wrote, and uh, this is from Centerville, Georgia. The small community of Centerville has a population of just over 5,000 people, but with a total of 48 Presbyterian churches, they also hold the record for the most number of Presbyterian churches in a small town. The high number of churches has to do with multiple splits that have taken place over the years because of one issue or another. Originally, in 1899, only one Presbyterian church existed, simply known as Centerville Presbyterian Church. With about 20 families, the church was at that time the largest in the Centerville area. By 1911, the church had grown to almost 150 members, a considerably large church at that time. But a dispute had arisen within the congregation over whether or not the offering should be taken before or after the sermon. Thus, the first split took place with the dissenting congregation forming Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. In 1915, a dispute amongst the members of Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the regulative principle of worship. Say that five times fast. It seems that some members of CRPC liked the idea of having flowers in the sanctuary, while others objected. 
As a result, CRPC split and Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville was organized with 25 members. Several more splits took place over various issues between the years 1915 and 1929. It was in 1931 that another dispute rose amongst the members of 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can seem to remember, nor do any records indicate. Suffice it to say that approximately half the congregation split away and nine people formed 3rd Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. Again, more splits took place between 1931 and 1975 when a major split took place within the PCUS denomination over the issue of merging with the more liberal PCUSA. At that time, 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain in the PCUS with the merger. Fifteen members broke off and formed St. John's Presbyterian Church. One week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the choice of a name for the church as several members objected to using the word saint in the name of a reformed church. Since 1975, several more splits have happened, with the most recent occurring this past weekend, when a dispute rose amongst the members of 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the observance of the Lord's Day. The issue in question was whether or not it was acceptable for someone to check their email on the Sabbath. Those who objected have now split off and formed the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminster Westminsterian Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communist Communionist Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. I think we finally got it right now, said Paul Davis, teaching elder at PTRCWSRCCAPCC. We now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. We're up to six people on Sundays now, says Davis. I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little more. Now, that sounds silly, right? I mean, who would fight over such things? I got a story for you later. I got a story for you later. The fact is, we fight over silly stuff. We will not fight over the big stuff. You know, we'll, we'll kind of keep our distance about the big stuff, but it's the, it's the silly stuff. And that's the silly stuff that drives me nuts when we start fighting over silly stuff. Now, the church in, uh, in the beginning did something about the problem that they had. The problem was the issue of works versus grace. The, they did something about that. There was a solution. It was a biblical solution. They... Talked, they, they went to Scripture to discover and, and to find out the answer to their problem. Peter gets up and he addresses the group. Look at verses 7 through 11. Peter gets up and addresses the group. says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And then James, Jesus' brother, the brother of the Lord, gets up and he addresses the group. Uh, There uh, he says, brothers, listen to me, verse 13. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. Then the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So you've got Peter who gets up. He addresses the crowd. 
the, the group, the apostles and the elders and the Pharisees, he, he gets up and addresses them and says, look, this is what happened when I went to Cornelius' house. And then Paul and Barnabas also got up and they talked about the, the miracles that had taken place among the Gentiles as they were out telling them the good news. And then James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and he offers up biblical evidence for what was going on, that the Gentiles were coming to faith. There were two kinds of evidence. One was experiential evidence. You could not argue against the experience of Peter and of Paul and Barnabas. You couldn't argue against that kind of experience. The second kind of evidence was biblical evidence, and you couldn't argue against that either because the Bible is the Word of God. And you want to argue against the Word of God, you want to fight against the Word of God, you will lose. All right, the word, of, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And when James gets up, he quoted Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and he quoted uh, the prophecy that the Gentiles would come to faith and that it was part of God's plan all along, that everyone would hear the good news of Jesus and would come to saving faith in Christ. We have to understand that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It is a double-edged sword. It penetrates both bone and marrow, according to Scripture in the book of Hebrews. Our enemies, and this is so key, when it comes to church conflict, our enemies are not flesh and blood. This book is more of a, when it comes to you and me, when it comes to us as Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ, this book is a love letter. All right, this is God's love letter to you and to me. And it tells me how to do what our mission statement says, to love God, love others, and spread the gospel. When it comes to our enemy, when it comes to the devil, when it comes to Satan, this is a weapon. But when it comes to you and me, this is not a weapon. This is a love letter. Does that make sense? Okay, that we understand. we're on the same page there. Good, we understand. It is a double-edged sword. We must be careful with it. We must not use it to attack one another, but only to attack our enemy. And that's exactly what it is. The sword of the Spirit. As the sword of the Spirit, it operates in the spiritual realm when it comes to attacking the enemy. That's what the Bible does. It's a love letter to you and me. It's a, it's a weapon against the devil. So we have a problem. We have a solution. And the last thing that happens is we have follow through. And this is so important. When you have a conflict, when conflict arises and people aren't getting along in the church and you come up with the problem, you got the problem, you come up with the solution, then it is you got to follow through on it. you got to do something. And that's exactly what they did. In Acts chapter 15, verses 24 through 29, we see the follow through. They, uh, they, they were going to send Paul and Barnabas out, and they sent a letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are abstained from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And they sent the men off. Now, the reason that they told them to follow those Jewish laws was because by following them, they would not offend their Jewish brothers. Just as they didn't want the Jews to offend the Gentiles, they didn't want the Gentiles to offend the Jews either. So they asked them to follow those laws and to avoid sexual immorality, which the pagan people around them, all the Greeks around them, were well known for. 
And so they told him to stay away from that. And God says, don't do that. They lived in an anything goes society, and they were supposed to stay away from, from sexual immorality. The law was not meant to save them, and nor was it meant to keep them saved. Remember, we are saved by God's grace. We are kept saved by God's grace. Division, like I said, when it comes to the church, division is Satan's greatest weapon. And we have got to nip division in the bud. We have to be unanimous in our decisions. The apostles and the elders, when they sent that letter out, they were unanimous in what they sent. They all agreed together. They got on the same page. We have to be unanimous in our decisions, and we have to follow through on them. When the leaders and the teachers of, uh, when the leaders and the elders of our church make a decision, they've got to follow through on it. We've got to uh, do what we have been called to do, because the Bible says that elders are worthy of a double honor, and I believe it's because they are uh, judged more strictly. In uh, the book of James, chapter three, he says that teachers are judged more strictly, and I, and First Timothy three calls elders teachers. That one of the requirements of an elder is that he be able to teach. And so if elders uh, and teachers are, to, are worthy of double honor, I believe they are also going to be judged more strictly. And so the elders and the leaders of our church need to know, we need to know, we need to remember that there is a, a, a more strict judgment coming. And therefore, we must keep that in mind when we make decisions regarding uh, the congregation, regarding the church family. And again, there's a higher standard and therefore, they're worthy of a double honor. I want to close with the story I promised you, this, this incredible story about a professor from Lincoln Christian University, a teacher in the seminary there. And I was in, when I was at Lincoln Christian College uh, studying to be a preacher, uh, we were in chapel service one day, and this professor gets up and tells the story. He had been called by a church to come settle a dispute. They called him and said, the church is on the verge of splitting. We're on the verge of splitting. Now, I don't know if you know this about a church or not, but churches that split have a bad reputation in their community for 20 years. It takes 20 years for a church to get over the stigma associated with a split. So you have this church that is on the verge of splitting. They're at each other's throats. They're fighting and fighting and fighting, and they just can't get it solved. They just can't come together. And they called this professor, and the professor goes to the church, and they sit in the auditorium, and he listens to them scream at each other and shout at each other for two hours. For two hours, they were screaming at each other and yelling at each other. This must have been some kind of an incredible, important doctrinal issue, something vital to the faith. And they fought, and they screamed, and they yelled, and they shouted for two hours over what color of carpet to put in the church building. They were on the verge of splitting a congregation over the color of carpet in the church building. They stopped fighting for just a moment, and they looked at him, and they said, well, and he looked at them and said, who in hell cares? Now, he didn't swear at them. He asked a very poignant, important question. Who? Who is spending eternity in hell? Who is spending eternity burning in a lake of fire that cares, that honestly at that moment cared what color of carpet they put in their church building? Does that make sense? You see, that really gets the light bulb on in my head. When it comes to church fights, when it comes to matters of personal preference, which is most often what we fight over, color of new paint, color of new carpet, we'll fight over issues of personal preference. 
The, the next time we have a, a dispute, okay, I want you to remember that story. Next time we have a fight, I want to remember that story. Because we forget something so important about the church. We forget something so vitally important. I look at the church as kind of like a lifeboat, all right? Think about like a Titanic for a moment. And, you know, the Titanic hits the iceberg and, and James Cameron's dollar signs go off in his head. And uh, the, uh, the Titanic is sinking and people are pouring into lifeboats. And I think of the church as a lifeboat and the world as the Titanic, and there are people who are dying. They're dying in their sins, and they are, they are going to spend eternity in hell. And, and here we are in the lifeboat arguing about who's sitting where, arguing about, you know, what color should we paint the lifeboat? And we'll fight about these silly things. Well, all the while, there are people around us going, you got ruined that lifeboat for us? No, wait, we're, we're busy. I don't like the color red for our lifeboat. It's so incredibly important that we understand that the church, the lifeboat, does not exist for us. We're in the boat, folks. All right? We're in the boat. Yay! We're safe. We're good. The church exists. The lifeboat exists for those sinking on the Titanic. And it is our job to get the people who are sinking on the Titanic, who are destined, destined for hell. Hell is a reality. Right, a lot of preachers don't want to talk about it. Oh, we're going to be nice and positive and think good thoughts. No. Hell is a reality. It is an absolute reality. And people who die apart from Christ will spend eternity there. And I'm not talking about like a week or two, like some kind of bad vacation. I'm talking about lake of fire for eternity. And if we do not tell them, if we do not tell them how to get in the boat, and if we fight with one another about what color to paint the boat, they're going to die. And I can't live with that. I can't. I have friends and neighbors and family members who don't know Jesus. And there are churches that will fight over the color of carpet and will ruin their chance. And this will not be one of them. We will not do that. Or I will not be the minister here. And I promise you that. It is so important that we understand this and that we get on the same page and that we work together and that we love one another and that we show the world that the church is the only hope that they've got because we know Jesus and they need to know Jesus. You with me? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth that is found therein. I pray that you would help us to love one another so strongly that the silly things that we could fight over will just be that silly things that we're not going to fight over. I pray that you would help us when we have conflict to come to a biblical understanding and that we would seek your word and seek your face, and in humility we would love one another and consider others better than ourselves. Help us not to fight over matters of personal preference and help us to uh, keep our eyes focused on what is truly most important. We love you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who died to make us one. And I pray that you would indeed do that, that you would make us one. We love you. We bless you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our time of invitation. And, uh, excuse me.